Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. The harvesting of wild American ginseng, the gnarled aromatic herb known for its therapeutic and healing properties, is deeply established in North America and has played an especially vital role in the southern and central Appalachian Mountains. And from my part, with a feeble attempt at humor, which uh, usually always fails, uh, one might say, well, who knew? Well, one person who certainly knows and has spent a great deal of time researching, writing, and digging, yes, digging, is the author of a new book titled Ginseng Diggers, A History of Root and Herb Gathering in Appalachia. That's Luke Manger. Luke is an assistant professor of history at Dalton State College in Dalton, Georgia. Luke, uh, to begin with, how did ginseng become such an important part of your life? Uh, You've taken over 200 pages to tell us uh, about that and many other things that uh, have gone on uh, in your life and, and many years before. But tell, tell folks about ginseng and other plants uh, that are native to the Appalachian area to start with. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, so my interest in ginseng, I mean, it goes back to probably I was about 10 years old when I saw my first ginseng plant in Pike County, Kentucky um, at, a, at the, my grandmother's old home place. But um, I really started digging into the history of the root um, in grad school. You know, I was looking for a, a, a topic to write about. I initially kind of started to look in to the post-Civil War era and in the Appalachian Mountains and, and how the region kind of recovered from, from the war. But uh, just, you know, looking through the sources, I kept seeing references to, to ginseng, um, to other roots and herbs. And and, uh, you know, I knew from stories my grandmother had told me, I knew from, uh, you know, from seeing it firsthand, I knew I knew what it was um, and, I, and I wanted to know more. So I started trying to find out more about the history of, of this of this plant and the trade that, that went on in Appalachia. And there was just wasn't a, a whole lot out there. Uh, it was a story that I think um, needed to be told. So I started I started digging more into that into that topic started looking for um the, the history of ginseng trade and and that d- took me to a bunch of other references to other roots and herbs um from you know may apple to blood root wild ginger all this kind of stuff and and you know i just started realizing that the appalachian region it's it's unique uh biodiversity the fact that it's tempered forests are some of the most diverse in the world um, you know, have a, just a remarkable variety of these plants. And as I began to uncover this story, I, I, fig- I found that that the region um, played an important role in supplying these medicinal plants to to global markets. So that's kind of the story that I was I was trying to tell here. Did you find a um, a wealth of material out there just waiting to be discovered? Is there a large body of work on the on the research that? Um, uh, on ginseng and other herbal and uh, medicinal uh, plants and roots that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, out there in in the in the in the scholarship. 
there, there are a few articles, um, you know, in the scholarship uh, specifically, you know, uh, people like Gary Fries, um, even uh, Mary Hufford, the folklorist has written about it uh, more in contemporary times. I mean, there's a few, there's a, you know, Kathy Newfont at the University of Kentucky has written a great book kind of, kind of um, moving briefly through the history of the ginseng trade, but, no, but nothing that really kind of, um, outline the, the the detailed contours of the trade and how it functioned on the ground. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and, and as I began to to research this topic, I, I quickly kind of realized why there wasn't much uh, secondary stuff out there is because there's not a lot of easily accessible primary sources. Uh, my first, uh, when I first started finding references to it, it was, it was primarily in, in newspapers, so these digitized newspapers and um, the 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 digitized newspaper databases are just changing the way we research you know and so I, I could just type in ginseng and it would come up with with several hits and and but looking through those newspaper articles you, I would I would find uh, just a a remarkable variety of these stories about the sang diggers of Appalachia and you know it um, they were extremely um, fantastical uh they were a lot of times very derogatory uh, in these you know they were describing the appalachian ginseng diggers in ways that they described uh, appalachian people in general which uh which was very you know at the time backward you know um backward hillbillies i mean you, you we were familiar with some of these appalachian stereotypes but the ginseng diggers were the most backward of all the backward you know appalachian people so i i i from that perspective i wanted to figure out like who who these people were and uh i i had this hunch that if i was going to find sources on them they were going to be in um the country store records uh because if they were bringing them in and trading them at the country stores as some of these articles seem to suggest then they were, they, they should appear there so I spent a lot of time, several years traveling around the region, looking at uh, as many of these like store ledgers as I could find and compiled, um, you know, over 30 or so different stores that I looked at. And, um, and so from those country store records, those business records, I was able to kind of piece together a little bit more of the, of the outlines about how the trade functioned, who was bringing them in. Um, and that kind of forms the, the bulk of the source base there. You used a, um, a term that uh, we will um, most likely use uh, throughout our conversation that a lot of people today might not be familiar with. You said sang, uh, sangers, and um, the word, of course, and I'll ask you um, not to, uh, uh, to make a, an attempt at a, a metaphor here, but uh, we talk about uh, the the root itself, but we, the root word uh, ginseng. What what does it mean, and how do you get um, the title or the the label of someone being a sanger? Yeah, so ginseng comes from the Mandarin ginshen, uh, which uh, goes so it goes back to China, um, and that was established pretty early in the 18th century when the trade starts starts ramping up, and so that's the name that eventually sticks. Um, but uh, the, the the term sang digger is is and sometimes shortened to sanger uh, seems to have come about in the mid to late 19th century, and the first reference that I found to it was in the 1850s. 
but by the 1870s and 1880s, there were numerous articles coming out in newspapers, but also some of these middle-class magazines. And there was even a novel written in the 1890s uh, mm. called Tannis the Sang Digger. So it, it becomes, it, it enters, you know, pretty, pretty common usage uh, in, around this time. And this was also the time where the Appalachian region was kind of, you know, uh, quote unquote, discovered and introduced to the American public as this this peculiar region with different people and, you know, separate and apart from the rest of the nation. And and so the Sang Diggers uh, of Appalachia uh, kind of become known to the American public in, in that in that context. And. And yeah, after after that, uh, by the 20th century, especially in the mid to late 20th century, yeah, you don't really uh, hear it that much anymore. You don't really see that term much anymore. But yeah, it's sang digger. I guess is is you know it's a shortened word of ginseng. So that's why they call it, refer to ginseng. Luke, um, what did you find in the store ledgers that was uh, interesting to you? I I'm trying to I'm familiar with country stores of yesterday and um, a lot of older people in Kentucky and all over uh, the uh, Southeast, I'm sure are the same way. They're, they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious about what a, um, a proprietor would keep, what sort of records he would keep uh, and, and how ginseng shows up in that um, store record. Right. So each store had had different records and it was a very and, and they had different systems for keeping records. I mean, you know, for the most part, some of them listed um, item by item, you know, what was sold. Some people just used the 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 the, the money totals um, and some some wrote illegibly. I couldn't even read them. I would go on this research trip and find that these all these ledgers are just illegible. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a little tricky, but uh, um, eventually, you know, I, I was able to find enough that that kept good enough records that could ha- that that listed line by line in terms of revenues and expenditures, um, credits and debits, that uh, I, w- I was able to kind of make make some sense out of it. But but there was there was a, a lot of um, a lot of really interesting um, findings I think in these ledgers. I mean one of the one of the I mean I really got me thinking about the role of the country store in these old communities. I mean, this is the place where, you know, most of people did their trading. Most of the people did their, um, their buying, which they called trading um, and how much bartering was going on. And there were, you know, especially in the 19th century, especially in the late 19th century. I mean, and, and I guess the early, early part of the century as well, people could bring in a, a, vari- a wide variety of things to trade. And so, I mean, not, and so you see ginseng, you see, see other kind of roots and herbs in there, but then you also see feathers and, you know, little pieces of gold and labor, you know, they would trade their labor for it. They would, uh, I mean, you name it, you know, cabbage, corn, uh, <laughs> uh, potatoes. Uh, I mean, they, they, they would, they would use a variety of things to barter for this stuff at the store without ever using cash. I mean, they also used cash, but, but the barter section was, a, was a pretty big, pretty big part of the store business. And then, and then the, the store owners, you know, the storekeepers had to find markets for everything they bartered for, you know, they had to resell it to somebody else. And so they were engaging in all, all kinds of different markets and it, and it, uh, it took quite a bit of, of balancing, but, but yeah, these stores would, I mean, this was a gathering point. This is where people did their trading. People would go to these Often stores. It was and, the post office. 
Yeah, it was, it was oftentimes it was a post office. Um, there was a, probably a furnishing merchant attached to it. I mean, so it and and they would go to these stores, and uh, there would be typically a price list for uh, the various roots and herbs that 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 would they could trade there. And so sometimes it would be, you know, a dozen, sometimes a couple dozen, sometimes there was, you know. 100 100 different plants that that you could bring in uh, for money and all in the prices that they would be willing to pay and so people would bring them in little sacks um and trade for whatever they needed uh they needed you know you know plow points uh they would gunpowder knives saddles uh corn bacon i mean i saw i saw ginseng traded for 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 all kinds of different stuff um and then at the end of the season or twice a season, the, the storekeeper would gather it all up, put it in the wagon, and often take it down to one of these Piedmont merchants who were dealing in these wholesale markets. Um, and those folks would then kind of take it up north um, or, or wherever, wherever else the, the market was. How do you imagine or does your research uh, show the um, Asian countries uh, particularly uh, uh, China and I would imagine uh, others uh, to uh, first began to trade with uh, the Appalachian states. And um, um, how, how did that happen? I mean, I, I'm trying to, to think about the discovery of someone who uh, harvested uh, each year uh, a certain number of pounds, and how how did that get to uh, to China, and how did how did uh, the, all of that is is that uh, on record? Yes, um, and it's a fascinating story. Um, it actually goes back to the seventeen teens when um, Jesuits Jesuit missionaries um, kind of discovered that by writing pretty much amongst themselves. I mean, they had missionaries all over the, all over the world. And uh, by writing to themselves, they kind of figured out that uh, this, this Asian plant that, that, that Chinese people put a lot of faith in, in their medicine. Um, and they call it, they call it ginseng. And this was actually Asian ginseng, which was Panax ginseng. Um, and they discovered that, uh, it, well, in fact, the Jesuit who wrote about it, Asian ginseng said he predicted that oh if, if if it grows anywhere else in the world it would it would grow in eastern North America because it had similar environments and sure enough there's a Jesuit missionary in Canada um, Father Lafitau who um, who said yeah I'll, you know I, I'll look for it I, I'll ask my my Iroquois neighbors if they seen it and so they asked the Iroquois and um, sure enough they had used it and they're like yeah we we know of that plant so they found some and brought it in and they they sent it to China the Chinese kind of started using it over the next couple of decades it becomes kind of clear to 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 people in China and in Canada that this plant in North America was in fact a ginseng plant they thought it was a, the, the same species but it's actually a different species panax singfolium but uh, but it could be traded uh, as a valuable commodity to China and so, yeah, over over the next few decades, by the 1750s, you see a major boom in, in Quebec, uh, and and the next subsequent decades, that kind of boom spread down into the Southern Appalachians, and by the turn of the 18th century, or sorry, turn of the 19th century, um, around 1800, the trade was pretty well established all throughout Appalachia. 
so yeah, it's it's really kind of interesting story that goes back to a couple of Jesuit missionaries. You may have already given us the the simple definition, but what is ginseng? <laughs> ginseng is a uh, is a deciduous perennial herbaceous plant, right? Meaning that uh, it it it, it's, it grows about eighteen inches high, probably at its height. Um, and it has as many as four and maybe even five leaflets. Uh, they call them prongs. Each one is made up of, of five distinct uh, uh, leaflets. Um, and it's, uh, it, it dies back every year, but the, the root continues to grow every year. And about the third, um, fourth, fifth year, it adds a third prong. And then as it gets older and older and it can live, for, for, you know, dozens of years, it can get up to four and maybe even five prong. Um, there have been rumors of, uh, most, most of, most of the time, the oldest ones are four prongs. Um, but, uh, yeah, in, and it's been used in, in China for, for centuries, uh, as something of a panacea. I mean, they used it as a tonic, um, to boost, you know, to boost energy. They used it as a, they, they kind of, um, saw it has a, having a cooling effect on the on the nervous system. It was uh, used to balance out the yin and the yang. I mean, it was used in an aphrodisiac. I mean, it was it was it was used for a wide variety of purposes um, throughout throughout much of Chinese history. So um, it's a fascinating little plant. <laughs> What's the difference in ginseng and ginger? Um, well, uh, in terms of the plant itself or the, the use, the plant itself, the use of it, uh, um, we, we are accustomed to drinking, uh, ginger tea and, and having ginger as a, uh, an additive of some sort, but right. not so much with, with ginseng. So is there chemically, is there a, a vast difference in this, in the two? Yes, I would say so. I mean, they're, they're entirely different, uh, families mm -hmm. of plants. Um, so, um, so, you know, ginger, um, ginger tastes better, you know, ginger has a better taste and it's used, it was used for, it was, in fact, it was used wild ginger, um, was used to make medicines taste better. Um, and it had a different effect, um, different, different medical effects, entirely kind of different medicinal uses. I should have done a, a bit more research on this, but remind me of the of the wooded product that I used to have in uh, in tea. Uh, it, it made a tea. It was completely legitimate, by the way. It was uh, <laughs> uh, what, what remind me what that was. I've forgotten. It was the, um, you, you boiled it. You boiled it. The 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 wood, the little splinters. OK, Sass, are you talking about sassafras? Sassafras. Was uh, it, that, sassafras. that was sassafras, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sassafras, right. Okay. Sassafras. Um, but you also studied, uh, and, and I want you to tell me in particular uh, about these uh, several, and then you, you named uh, many more when we were talking before we started recording, um, uh, mayapple, bloodroot, wild ginger, uh, lady slipper, and then you had uh, you had several more that that you listed. Right. Were they as prolific, as popular? As, uh, were they being sold uh, for medicinal purposes to to the uh, Orient also? Uh, so yeah, so the the history of these other plants. I mean, each plant has kind of its own history, and it, and that was, that was one of the difficult parts of of telling this story is to is to kind of lump them all together into one kind of species of commodity. But they but they all have their own markets and their own their own distinct kind of trade. 
dynamics. Um, but but they were never as popular as ginseng in the, in the sense that ginseng always fetched the highest price. So ginseng was the prize if you were going to go root digging. You were you were you were you wanted to find ginseng. Um, and from the early 19th century, when it was fetching 25, 35 cents a pound to the late 19th century, when it was getting about four and a half dollars or five dollars a pound. So that was what you wanted. But but uh, over time, different markets opened up for different roots and herbs. And those largely depended on kind of prevailing medical theories and, and prevailing medical practices and therapeutic practices. So for a long time in the mountains, ginseng was one of the few roots you could trade. Um, there was also limited markets for various types of snake root, Virginia snake root, um, Seneca snake root, which um, had had slightly different purposes. Pink root, which um, Spigalia uh, marylandica, that was used as a vermifuge to uh, get rid of intestinal worms. Um, and so that, there were markets early on for that. But by the 1840s, there were a, variety, a wide variety of different markets now opening up, thanks to uh, certain medical movements um, that had uh, arisen to challenge medical orthodoxy in this country. You know, this, this was the era of heroic medicine, the era of mercury, the era of bleeding and purging and cuffing and blistering <laughs> the dark ages of medicine if you will so so you know it was there were a lot of people that looking for other things you know they were they were thinking that this 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 medicine isn't helping me you know in fact it <laughs> might be making me worse yeah. mercury poisoning so so you have a, a variety of different groups put, came, coming forward including um, patent medicine companies who are who are catering to this new kind of consumer demand for more natural remedies for more uh, indigenous what they call indigenous vegetable medicines, um, and so by the 1840s you, you see a, a variety of other markets opening up for things like May apple um, for uh, lobelia may have been one of the one of the first in that era um wild ginger blood root you know solomon seal uh, i mean you name it there were there were there were dozens of other ones and there were a few that just like popped up and there was a demand for a few months and then disappeared and never see it again so it, it's it was um it was interesting and then by the late 19th century the patent medicine industry the pharmaceutical industry is growing and it's uh it, it's making hundreds of other medicinal plants leaves, um, roots, as well as, you know, uh, seeds and uh, flowers, barks that are now marketable. So yeah. ginseng might've brought them into the woods, but they, but, but once these other markets opened up, they could find, um, mm -hmm. a wide variety of other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, we also, you also touch, uh, in the book on, um, and the book is, is far more than just, uh, ginseng, uh, our dear listeners. Um, mm -hmm. There's a a really uh, well uh, researched in several chapters on um, land use and uh, uh, how people were um, uh, looking at at the uh, the Appalachian states, but but other areas too. And you use you you use the term commons rights, which uh, apparently. Um, among historians and um, and I would uh, imagine uh, other uh, professions is is a fairly common uh, use of the word. But uh, to ordinary uh, layperson, 
they they might be familiar with in a in a college setting the commons area, uh, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure they ever took that uh, thought and uh, discovered or looked into where it came from. So tell us about the commons uh, in uh, in the 18th century, uh, the 19th century. Yes. So it's a, it's a fascinating kind of informal social institution um, that, and, and the term commons, first of all, I should say, I mean, is, is pretty diffuse. I mean, it has a lot of different meanings and it's, and it's a little difficult to, to pin down exactly. The commons that I'm referring to um, is this, um, this, this kind of informal system um, that guaranteed all, virtually all members of a community access to undeveloped, unimproved spaces um, in their community for a variety of purposes. Um, and each of those purposes and each of those spaces was always subject to some sort of, you know, negotiation and it changed over time. But, but by and large, um, people in, in, in Appalachia and, and elsewhere in the country, but in Appalachia, it persisted longer. Um, people just expected to be able to access the forested mountainsides um, to be able to do a variety of things from digging roots and herbs to, uh, to hunting, to fishing, to, um, to running hogs, right? So to using the chestnuts and the chestnut mass and in the woods to, to feed, to fatten up their hogs, you know? So there, um, so the commons is, is just this, these kind of spaces and resources that are widely accessible to, 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 to virtually everybody in the community. Um, and it, uh, it was a, it was a pretty, you know, it's a, it's it, we don't know a lot about this institution because people just didn't write too much about it, right? It was just kind of customary, right? And it develops from the frontier phase when 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 whites you know move in, displace Native Americans, and and when there's plenty of you know tons of land, open land available, you know people get used to being able to hunt, get used to being able to fish, and but as settlement kind of increased, population increased. Um, people hung on to these customs and, and, and they had, you know, principles behind them and they developed into rights. And, um, and, um, and by the late 19th century, you can still see, uh, and, and even, and even beyond, but you can still see this, this expectation that if you find it growing wild, right. If you find it, you know, growing in the forest through nobody's effort, but nature's God's right. Then you could, then you could harvest it. I mean, it was the property of the harvester. They, 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 they figured rather than the landowner on whose land it grew because the landowner didn't do anything, put it there. So, so there's this whole system of kind of rights um, and um, in language that come about uh, to, to refer to this kind of commons use. But uh, but people didn't write about it too much. People didn't talk about it. So we don't know a lot about how it functioned until it gets until until they become, you know, they become curtailed, that people start challenging these common rights and then people are forced to defend it. And so you can see it kind of bubbling up in the historical record every now and then, which you do in the late 19th century. I'm talking with uh, Luke Monjay, who is a uh, an assistant professor of history at uh, Dalton State College in Dalton, Georgia. And. He is the author, uh, in fact, uh, Luke, you're uh, the first of our many, many authors I'll be talking with on the podcast who will be attending our 22 Kentucky Book Festival in, in October. Uh, you're going to be a guest there. Um, and uh, his book is called Ginseng Diggers, uh, a history of uh, er- root and herb um, 
gathering in Appalachia. Uh, and Luke, I'm, uh, it's fascinating, really. I'm, I'm, uh, I hope uh, surely there are others out there interested, as interested in I, I am. But I, I want to tell you just a little personal story that uh, the first time uh, I saw, um, touched uh, ginseng out of a paper bag, a big, huge paper bag in uh, a, a country store uh, in either Allen County or somewhere in South Central Kentucky, far from the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, I was so curious to get into your book and to read. And of course, you're just concentrating in, in one area. So uh, my, my question leads me to uh, where else was it grown? Was it grown all over? I, I remember asking the store owner of uh, being very curious about these bags that he had stacked up. And he was very gracious in telling me uh, that he was waiting to take them to uh, a, a broker who would eventually take them uh, to the Orient. And, and we, we talked a little bit about that. And I said, uh, well, how much do you get for, for a sack of, of uh, ginseng like that? He said, um, that bag right there probably brings $700. And I said, what? It's a bag of, of roots. Now, it, was a, it was a big bag, but it was maybe um, a bag and a half uh, of, that we used to get at the grocery store. Not plastic, but paper. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a big bag. Oh. And I was amazed. And I said, why in the world do uh, more people not uh, farm uh, ginseng and, and, and get involved in this trade? He says, because it's hard work. And the young generation, and this has been probably, my goodness gracious, probably 25, 35 years ago. He said, because the young people don't want to get out and, and, and work for it. Uh, I can take my grandson out and show him exactly where the plant is, and uh, he won't he won't care. Um, so my question to you is, was it grown um, obviously all over Kentucky? We're we're in Kentucky, but you're in in the uh, the Piedmont, the 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 Carolina areas, um, and there are really I read and understand really three types of ginseng. And if you could talk about those, uh, I would appreciate it. So the story of, of ginseng cultivation um, is, uh, is fascinating. So I, I dive that into that a little bit. And there were, there had always been efforts to try to, to farm it, to try to grow it in gardens. And it goes back to the 18th century with William Byrd in Virginia, who tried to grow it and tried to get botanists interested in seeing it grown. And they had visions of, you know, plantations of ginseng that they would, uh, yeah. that they could make a lot of money on, you know, um, but they, they couldn't, they couldn't figure out how to do it. Uh, William Byrd seems to have tried to grow, grow it into too warm a weather. It was just too warm in the, on the Virginia peninsula. Um, it needs some cool, it needs some cool nights and cool winters. Um, so, you know, so it does take a, you know, a little a particular, um, climate, um, uh, and it, and it couldn't, it couldn't really successfully be grown in Europe either. I mean, there, there was a, apparently a few that people got to come up, but, but it, it, it didn't take to it. So, you know, so, so fast forward a hundred years to the 1900, 
in the 1890s really is when this people started saying that look this ginseng's disappearing in the wild we really need to start growing it on 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 farms and in gardens and so there was a several decades of kind of experimentation people tried to grow it essentially as a row crop uh, you know on on in large open fields um and you know that didn't work it needs it needs shade you know and and plus if you if you pack them too close in there in in sandy soil you you get pest problems and and disease problems fungus and um and uh you know and plus they figured they found out that if you grow it in this in sandy soil and like prepared soil like you do potatoes or something it grows like a carrot i mean it's just like a taproot you know and, and it doesn't like fork off and get all gnarly like um like the chinese like it to you know and so a lot of it was trying to so, so it became clear by, by the, you know, the 19 teens that you, you had to kind of grow it in a way that looked wild, you know, and um, growing in, in the open field just didn't work as well. Um, having natural shade in the forest, growing it in forest soil that was not prepared uh, was, was just the best way to do it. And so, so you start to see the development of, of kind of, um, of different types of cultivated ginseng and wild simulated ginseng today is kind of the, the ginseng that essentially is growing natural in the woods and is is given a little help by 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 some by the landowner by the by the gardener um but uh there are kind of more more open field cultivated stuff um with with artificial shading that um looks a little bit different um and then you have you have entirely wild ginseng um and so by the early 20th century you have different grades uh, of these ginseng depending on how wild they are uh, and the wildest ones you know and the wildest looking ones are fetching the highest prices you know so um but this was um this was not easy to do uh you know one of the big problems with cultivation back then, as well as now, is there, you know, these this persistence of common of, of the commons and common rights. So people kind of just assume that if you found ginseng growing in the woods, you can dig it up. And increasingly by the 20th century and into the 20th century, you know, that's not the case. And you still see clashes over people who are trying to trying to trying to to exert ownership over um, the growing ginseng in their woods and those who kind of persist in this belief that you can't own the wild growing plants on your property. So it's, it's really kind of interesting. I mean, even though legally speaking, you know, it, the, 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 the laws are all on the side of the landowner now, but it hadn't always been the case that, that, that changed in the late 19th century, um, the legal regime. Luke Monjay is our guest, uh, the author of uh, Ginseng Diggers, and uh, we're going to hear a, a word from our great uh, underwriter, Spalding University, and be right back to conclude our talk about ginseng right after this. Spalding University's low-residency MFA in creative writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres. Explore the interrelatedness of the arts. Travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. 
So, Luke, uh, in conclusion, as they say, what uh, what's the future of of ginseng as a uh, medicinal product, uh, as a commercial product, um, and forget the um, the the enormous uh, price that that it it has. Uh, I just wonder now. I'm I'm really uh, quite fascinated with this. If inflation. Uh, that we're dealing with now currently <laughs> is uh, affecting uh, the the price of ginseng. Uh, you may you may know that, but what what are the what are the um, what are the Chinese going to do for the product that they so desperately need? And and I would imagine use uh, a lot of uh, every single day. Yeah, that's a I mean it's a good question. Um, it's it's still the demand is still high. I mean they they get a lot of cultivated root from mainly Korea, um, but. But, you know, it, 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 people can get, as you said, people can get from up to 800, maybe even a thousand dollars a pound um, for, for ginseng. So it's always going to invite people who do not care about stewarding the resource. So it's always going to invite people who don't care about conservation to come in and dig up whatever they can find. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be an ongoing struggle with trying to man- maintain these populations and, and increase populations. Um, right. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, I think, I think it's important that we kind of continue this trade. I mean, that, that people can go on, uh, forms of commons like the national forest to be able to find these ginseng and, and make some money off of it. Because I mean, research has shown lately that ginseng digging and high unstable, un, unstable employment kind of go hand in hand. So in the coal mining regions where people can, you know, have periods of unemployment, ginseng digging kind of goes up. So it, it provides like an important social safety net in some ways um, to, to these folks, but, but we got to do it um, in a sustainable way, you know, so we got to figure out, um, we, we got to educate, you know, we got to tell, we got to teach people how to, how to, how to be stewards, um, how to maintain populations so they can do it uh, over long periods of time. Um, and that's going to take kind of, you know, also successful management of the commons. There um, are uh, some pretty strict regulations and laws uh, that, um, that now govern, uh, I believe I read in, in 19 States, Kentucky being one of those mm-hmm. uh, for the harvesting uh, of ginseng. Um, those aren't going to lapse or, or, but, but who, I wonder who is out there, conservation officer, uh, uh out there, uh, patrolling for, uh, people who are taking ginseng, uh, on somebody's property. Uh, yes. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's more common to find people into, into, uh, um, stop people from digging on public lands. I mean, I think those lands are, are being policed. Uh, I think it's, you know, if people are, find um, folks digging on on their private property without permission, then you know it's up to that landowner to kind of you know call somebody. But it's not legal. You have to have permission. You have to have written permission on your person. You know, dated within the past you know few months um, to be able to dig on private property. So uh, you know, so that's in, enforcing that that is is always a challenge though. Um, but but it's only harvested. It's only harvested once a year from a period uh, of time in the fall, and then uh, no one. Um, now, is that is that the same uh, rule for cultivated um, ginseng, not just wild uh, ginseng? Um, 
or do you know? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. From what I, from yeah. What I've, from, I'm pretty sure that the, yeah. st- the rules, the rules still apply in terms of waiting because you have to wait till they go to seed in the fall. And that's why it's yeah. all about conservation. Yeah. Um, so, so there's, there, I mean, there's a lot of laws in the States that forbid the, 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 um, possession of both the root and the seeds. So if you take the root, you have to replant the seeds. You can't leave the dig site mm-hmm. with the seeds. So, so there, I mean, the laws are, are trying to get people to, to can, can replenish these, uh, replenish these plants, but, it's 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 still a challenge like in national forests in North Carolina national forests um, no one's allowed to dig these, this year um, they they have a moratorium on digging and last year too so and and they're beginning to really actively work on on, re, on repopulating ginseng so that's that's a good sign but, but ho- I hope it's I hope it's still around for a long time. Uh, Luke Monjay is the author and uh, we appreciate uh, his time this afternoon. Uh, This is in advance of his uh, appearance uh, in Lexington at the Kentucky Book Festival on October the 29th at Joseph Beth Booksellers. Um, I'm sure he'd be glad to to, uh, talk with you. Uh, I I just think it's a a fascinating subject that's been around for hundreds of years. And um, it's one of those that need to be kept alive and that more people need to know about. Uh, And Luke, we're glad that uh, you're a young fellow who who can keep it going. (laughs) <laughs> well, thanks, Bill. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed talking with you, and I'm glad you. I'm glad you liked the book. <laughs> Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.